The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of Chess, I would like to welcome you to this Chest Journal podcast. I am Dr. Gretchen Winter, and I am your Chest Podcast moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be an interesting discussion of patients' perceived health following critical illness. We're fortunate to have Dr. Allison Turnbull as our guest. Dr. Turnbull and her colleagues wrote an article in the Chest Journal, Understanding Patients' Perceived Health After Critical Illness. Analysis of Two Prospective Longitudinal Studies of ARDS Survivors. Dr. Turnbull is a critical care epidemiologist and is an associate professor in pulmonary and critical care medicine and in epidemiology at Johns Hopkins University. Her research focuses on clinical research methodology issues with specific interest in studies of patient family engagement in the ICU and in evaluating the long-term outcomes of ICU survivors and their families, much like this study. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. So let's start by discussing why you decided to research this topic. What question were you asking and why? I started thinking about what would become this paper um, as a result of my KO1 award from NHLBI. And that was an award to study response shift and quality of life in survivors of acute respiratory failure and really um, ARDS specifically. So um, I think I, I should go back and explain. Response shift is a, a phenomenon that a lot of people haven't heard about, but is more kind of centered in the quality of life literature. And it looks at the issue of how people's perspectives change after a major illness or injury um, and tries to estimate a counterfactual. It tries to say, if this person had not gotten sick or had not been injured, how would they rate their quality of life now? Um, And I'm quite sympathetic towards researchers who are trying to evaluate interventions and face a moving target, which is that, um, you know, how somebody judges their life changes while they're in the intervention. And um, frequently this can result in, or sometimes, one one hypothesis is that a lot of interventions to try and improve quality of life after critical illness have failed, not because the intervention isn't good, but because um, a substantial number of people in both groups, the intervention and control group, feel better about their life or their health over time. And so the intervention doesn't look very different from the control group. And so you might want to try and estimate 
response shift to figure out, well, what would these people have said had they not adapted or changed? Um, however, however, there's a big however here in all of this research, which is that it treats what that person would have said had they not gotten sick as the truth, and it treats the difference between that estimate and what a patient is actually telling you as error. And I, I find that problematic because we take so much from patients and we tell them about their bodies and their health and their life, um, and it's still their body and it's still their health. And one of the few things that is still theirs is quality of life. You know, quality of life is defined as an individual's perception of their position in life in the context of their culture and value system in which they live and in relation to their goals. That's a, a WHO definition. It is their perception. And so to say, you're wrong, <laughs> we think your quality of life is actually X and you are mistaken is frankly kind of insulting. So um, the more I, I kind of researched that and started reading about that, the more I thought, that's not the right comparison, and that's not the study I want to do. Um, and that led me to think, well, what is the right comparison? Who should we be comparing survivors to? Um, and I, I think the answer is other survivors who have a similar duration since they have been critically ill or uh, ventilated or depending on your study question exactly. Um, so, so I set out to say, compared to other people who have been through similar illnesses and had a similar amount of time since hospital discharge, how are people doing? Because that, to me, felt like the proper comparison group. Well, I am already completely fascinated. So your study deals with perceived health of patients, but why does perceived health matter? Like, why is that's that an a, outcome that you're looking at? That's a great question. Um, yeah, so underlying all of this is the assumption that how people feel about their health matters. Um, and, you know, <laughs> we can have kind of a, a philosophical discussion about that, but if you want to just be a researcher about it, there's a, a really well-known 2002 paper from the International Journal of Epidemiology uh, Clark and Oswald, I believe, called A Simple Statistical Method for Measuring How Life Events Affect Happiness. And um, it presents a lot of work from the economics literature that allows you to compare different life events, uh, getting married, getting divorced, being unemployed, getting sick, and kind of compare how much they change, how happy someone is with their life, their general well-being. And, um, you know, under, you, can, you can read the paper, but basically under this method, one of the things they find is that there are few things that impact how happy we are beyond how we feel about our health. And um, so I think it matters. You know, I don't, I don't think we need more justification than that. Um, people, you know, we all want to make people's lives better, and this is one thing we can do. Perfect. So can you please explain the basics of your study design for our listeners? Sure. Um, so we started with a couple big cohorts of ARDS survivors. Um, the first was the ARDSnet Long-Term Outcome Study, or ALTOS. That was a collection of ARDSnet trials that had all been negative, um, where everybody, the trials had happened in the ICU, and then ALTOS took all those patients and followed them up um, 
after they left the hospital for, for up to a year, I believe. And then the second study is called the Improving Care of Acute Lung Injury Patients. It's a little older, and it's uh, survivors of ARDS, basically, in a, in a bunch of hospitals around Baltimore. So, um, yeah, those are the two, those are the two cohorts. Um, we then looked at um, the response. So our outcome that we cared about was the response to the question on a 0 to 100 scale uh, about how people perceived their health. So um, this is a visual analog scale um, from the EQ5D. So some people will be familiar with that. And um, the question said, to help us say how good or bad your state of health is, I'd like you to try and picture in your mind a scale that looks like a thermometer. The best state you can imagine is marked 100, and the worst state you can imagine is a zero. I'd like you to tell me the point on this scale where you would put your own health today. That question was asked of people at 6 and 12 months after ARDS, after they'd gone home. Um, and then we said, can we predict that using all of their answers to other questions in the EQ5D and the SF36? So those are two, two different ways that we measure health-related quality of life. So not quality of life, which is about how you feel about your life, but health-related quality of life, which asks about what can you do. So um, it, it focuses on people's level of ability and daily functioning so these are questions about both mental health, pain, physical functioning, stuff like can you carry groceries, can you walk a mile, how tired are you, all that stuff. Can we use answers to those questions to predict how they're going to answer the thermometer question about how do you perceive your health? Um, those were a lot of questions. So we had to use kind of um, complex uh, statistical methods for when you have um, a whole bunch of more predictors kind of than, than people. So sometimes called um, big P, small N problems. So uh, we broke the cohorts down into training sets and validation sets to create these prediction models, uh, found the one that works best, which happened to be using uh, ridge regression. Um, you know, these are, these are shrinkage methods. This is also part of my K, kind of learning these more complex methods. Um, and then for once we had those models predicted for each patient, um, what do we think you're going to say about your health, given all that data we have about what you can do and your mental health symptoms and pain and your social functioning? Um, so we have two values now, what we think you're going to say, our prediction, and what you actually said, the observed. So we're really just looking at residuals. This isn't that complicated. Anybody who's ever run a regression method has looked at their residuals. But there wasn't a term in the literature uh, for this particular residual. So um, we called it perspective deviation. Maybe not the best name, but we needed a, a quick way to say the difference between what we expected or what we predicted and what you really said. So um, we looked at the distribution of those residuals, and then we looked at them in relation to a lot of uh, patient characteristics that people would know about in the ICU to try and answer the question, can we predict based on stuff about, you know, information we know about a patient while they're in the ICU, if they are going to feel better or worse than the average survivor who has this kind of physical, emotional functioning six and 12 months later. Does that cover, does that kind of make sense? Absolutely. I hope? Okay. So, what did you find regarding patients' actual perceived health versus their predicted perceived health? 
Yeah, so, um, you know, this is what you want to see often when you are looking at residuals, which is that there's a bell curve centered on zero. So we're doing a pretty good job of predicting, but there are people in both directions, both who are, uh, I guess you could say, they perceive their health as being much better and much worse than we predicted. So, um, yeah, imagine that bell curve with everybody in the middle being about what you'd expect and knowing that there are people in, in both directions by a number of points on that zero to 100 scale. Now, what is the significance of the discrepancies that you did find between the actual perceived health versus the predicted perceived health, and why do those discrepancies matter? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is one place where I think more research is needed. Generally speaking, uh, a minimal clinical important difference on this scale, on the EQ5D VAS scale of eight points, is treated as clinically significant. But um, so we used that too, that just to be consistent with the literature. Um, but, you know, it's hard to know what does that mean. Um, we don't have data following these patients beyond these questionnaires to see did that result in anything specific in their lives. Um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of, that's one of those things that future research uh, needs to look at. You also found significant differences in the health statuses of patients who had similar answers, though, to the predictive questions about their perceived health. What are possible explanations for that? Yeah, so I think the first one you have to address, because it's what all people always bring up, is like, well, maybe you just didn't have a question about some really important aspect of health, right? Like maybe the SF36 and the EQ5D don't ask about really important things. And if you had asked that one question, you could predict everybody perfectly. That's certainly possible. You can't uh, disprove it. But, you know, these are very well-validated, commonly used uh, measures of health-related quality of life um, that, that cover a lot of ground, including things like being really tired and pain um, and mental health. So um, I think you'd have to make a pretty strong argument that there's something really important missing for that to explain it. Um, you know, I'll, I talked a little bit in the discussion about other things that determine how we feel about our health and our lives. And they are not just your physical health or even just your mental health. So things like expectations and comparisons, who you're comparing yourself to, um, you know, those are hypothesized to be other things that may explain these big differences between people who you're exactly right, gave the exact same answers to questions about what they could do around their homes, what they could do at work, et cetera. Um, and obviously what you can do at work, uh, what you can do at home, how much mobility you have, all those things of course, are strongly influenced by social factors like wealth and social support. So, um, you know, I am in no way ignoring those things, but those things often, uh, you know, create disparities. And even when people say they can do all the same things as a result of, the, of those amplifiers, um, you know, they're still giving different answers about how they view their own health. Now, I'm going to touch on a word that many of us uh, in the wellness uh, research sphere really don't like, but 
what role does a patient's psychological resilience play in their perceived health? Yeah, I know. I know why you're asking that. Um, so, sure, there's there's a big literature out there on psychological resilience, um, and I want to be careful not to blame victims. You know, saying people mm-hmm. are unhappy because they lack resilience is a form of dismissal. And I think healthcare professionals over the last couple of years have learned um, that while certainly resilience exists and matters, um, you know, it can also be used to kind of uh, scapegoat people. So, you know, you yeah. see it on social media a lot. Don't tell me to be more resilient. Fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Staff this ICU properly. Get us decent PPE, etc. So. Yeah, right. So, you know, the same thing happens with ICU survivors. We can simply say, well, you're failing to adapt. You're not very resilient. Or we can get into the mud of what's really going on here and not just dismiss feelings. So I found your discussion of a patient's expectations and of social comparison very interesting. Can you please explain to us the role of those two things in a patient's perceived health And additionally, what we as providers can do to optimize those things for our patients and their families. Yeah, so this is really in the in the realm of um, kind of cutting edge. This is still speculative. So these are hypotheses I have, and I I know I'm not the only one. So um, let's just take them one at a time. The first is uh, social comparisons. So we know in general in the the social well-being or the happiness literature. that comparisons who people think of as their peer group uh, matter when they answer questions, whether it's about their life or their health. So, um, you know, if you are, you know, if you're the poorest person in your community, you probably don't feel really great about your life, but the person with somebody with the same amount of income, if they are of a very average income in their community or very high-earning person, a wealthy person in their community, may see their life very differently. So um, I'm not really, I don't think we've done a good job of studying so far what people's, uh, who, who people are comparing themselves to. So another, another kind of uh, example of this I sometimes give is that if you, um, you know, have a car crash or, or a spinal cord injury or something, and, and you go to a specialty rehab area where everyone there has had the same injury uh, or is everybody's trying to rehab from a spinal cord injury, you're going to look around at everybody else in that center, and that's how you're going to decide how you're doing. If you are leaps and bounds ahead of the other guy who also had a whatever, you know, C4 injury, you're going to feel like, I'm doing pretty well at recovering. But if you go home and you are amongst completely able-bodied people and you, are, you know, don't know other people with your injury, you're going to feel really differently about your health. So um, you know, I don't think we know what the comparison group is for a lot of people answering these surveys. And then that ties into expectations because that social comparison group often creates expectations about how one's health should be. And we're seeing that now um, around uh, long-term outcomes of COVID. So, um, you know, there are differences, but there are also a lot of similarities. Um, uh, if you have been critically ill in the ICU with COVID-19 to other survivors of acute respiratory distress syndrome, um, not perfectly analogous, but 
unlike a lot of other causes of ARDS, there's so much in the media um, and in the public discourse about surviving COVID and the long-term outcomes and the long-term effects and disabilities, et cetera, um, that, that people have expectations, right? Am I going to get long COVID? Am I going to be one of those people who really struggles? Um, and I don't think that was necessarily true for a lot of people in this study who, if they went home, you know, developed sepsis and then got ARDS and went home and told somebody, I had ARDS in the ICU, you know, their neighbor is not going to have any idea what that is. They're not going to have any expectations. Um, and they probably, and their family probably didn't know what to expect either leaving the ICU. So, um, you know, how we should shape expectations is a question that has not been uh, well studied or addressed. We are doing it uh, by accident right now with all of the discussion and media coverage of long-term outcomes of COVID-19. So I'm very, very curious going forward to see how that affects how people think about their health, um, you know, post-ARDS as a result of COVID-19 versus other causes pre uh, pre-pandemic. So can you please discuss for us some of the limitations of your study? Yeah. Um, so a few things. One is that at least for the ARDSnet data, these are all people who agreed to be in or were eligible to be in trials. So they tend not to be quite as sick, not have quite as many comorbidities as other ARDS patients. So that's not perfect. Um, all of this, of course, is also happening. These are all people who were enrolled before COVID-19. So, like I said, it's not a perfect, uh, perfectly analogous group, a perfect comparison group for a lot of survivors today. Um, and, you know, there, have been, there are now different expectations as a result of pretty robust media coverage of what it's like to be on a ventilator and in an ICU for a while in the last couple of years. So things may change. Um, I also just want to be very clear that the prediction models we used in this study are not meant to be used clinically in any way. That's, that's not how they were designed. So this isn't really something you can take directly out into uh, work in an ICU. It is more just starting to explore um, what determines whether how people think about their health. And, and I should say, because I don't think I did it earlier, that there just aren't good predictors based on what you know about someone in the ICU. Things like baseline health, severity of illness, age, gender, they did not predict how much prospective deviation a person would have. Um, and, and that was a little surprising to us. You know, we thought that there might be um, correlations with, with baseline comorbidity status or frailty or previous episodes of uh, depression, and we just couldn't find it. So what unique contribution does this work make to the medical literature and our understanding of critical illness outcomes? I hope that this piece helps people start thinking critically about um, how little we know about how people change psychologically after critical illness. And that should I hope help people avoid making assumptions. You know, it's, I hear sometimes people say, you know, survivors all adapt. Well, clearly that's not true. It's a, it's a heterogeneous group, how much people adapt, to what degree. 
um, in what ways is, is all over the map, and we just can't know when we're looking at them in the ICU, um, you know, to what degree people will experience perspective deviation. So, Dr. Turnbull, as we finished up this, this discussion, can you please give our listeners a closing thought on what we want them to take away from this discussion? I think that for clinicians, um, I want to be careful that they don't interpret the study to mean um, that they should avoid answering questions about ICU survivorship. Because what this study doesn't say is that we don't know what will happen to people um, or how people will recover. There, there is meaningful data on um, physical impairments, cognitive impairments, emotional de- impairments post-ARDS. Um, and when patients or their families ask for that information, you know, we should not dodge those questions. We should answer those questions. But what we shouldn't assume is that we know how people are going to respond to those new cognitive, physical, emotional impairments. That part, we just don't know and um, shouldn't assume. Well, I want to give a big thank you to Dr. Turnbull for a fascinating discussion and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast. Until next time.